Well, aren't you thankful for air conditioning today? Holy cow. Like I was reminded when I walked in here this morning that when I walked in here a week ago, it was 62 degrees in the sanctuary because the overnight low had been down in the 40s and we had to run the heat last Sunday. Can you believe that? And we've had nothing but 90 cents and looks like a lot of 90s uh, coming up in the, the, the days to come. So uh, hopefully you're staying cool if you're watching this online or listening to this at some point in the future. Uh, it's hot out there. It's going to be hot again today. Um, but we are, are grateful to be in the presence of the Lord, especially with air conditioning this morning. So I wonder uh, if any of you have ever heard of the book, The Quilt Maker's Gift. Anybody? Not too many in the room, it doesn't look like. There's a few. Very good. Um, if you haven't, this is a book that is one of our family's favorites. Uh, my wife is a quilter, um, and she makes all kinds of wonderful things out of fabric. Um, and quilts are, are among uh, the chief uh, items that she loves to make. And this book tells the story that kind of fits into our message today. It tells the story of a very wealthy king who loved to receive gifts and loved to receive uh, presents from people and had made uh, rules and laws. And they, one of them was even that they would celebrate his birthday twice a year instead of just once a year so that he would have extra opportunities uh, to receive those gifts. And his palace uh, was full of these gifts that he had received. And yet, we read very early on that this king never smiled. In fact, we're told that with all these marvelous treasures, he was not happy at all. Somewhere there must be one beautiful thing that will finally make me happy, he was often heard to say, and I will have it. And that kind of introduces our theme today, and we'll come back to this a little bit later on, but we're going to be talking about contentment. We've been in a series titled Living and Loving, and uh, last week we talked about godliness. We talked about godly living, and we were looking at 1 Timothy chapter 4, and I had originally planned uh, to go back into a psalm, and I just felt like, no, we're not quite done. We need to talk about contentment as well. And as I studied godliness, I obviously saw the verse that we'll start with today, which says that godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness and contentment is great gain. And so we're going to be talking about contentment today, and it does flow right out of godliness, or at least it should. That's God's design, that, that our godliness, as we become more and more like Him, our godliness would bring us greater and greater contentment in Him. And so we're closing down this series. If you were with us last week, we talked about the idea that godly living is good for you and it's good for everyone around you. Today we're going to be focusing on contentment. And then next week, we will start a new sermon series titled, A Firm Foundation. A Firm Foundation. If you've been doing our Banding Together reading plan, you might have hit June 1st and wondered, okay, what are we supposed to do now? There's like a number of different options. And you really get to pick which of those Old Testament options you want to do. Uh, I'm personally going to be reading through option two, with, which is the historical books of the Old Testament. You might be first time through this and you want to read option one, which is the law, or maybe you want to get into prophecy or you want to do uh, something else. However you choose to read through most of our messages this summer will be 
tied to or rooted in the Old Testament, but they won't necessarily follow a specific reading plan like our series so far this year have done. So that gives you a little heads up of what's coming, but today I want to encourage you to turn to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, Again, that's kind of towards the back, a little over uh, halfway through the New Testament letters, you find First and Second Timothy. And uh, as I mentioned last week, uh, Timothy was the pastor at a church in Ephesus. And so you have the book of Ephesians, which is written to that church in Ephesus and was one of the most widely circulated letters. It was copied and sent all over. Um, and then you have these letters of First and Second Timothy, which were letters from Paul, a pastor, to Timothy, a younger pastor. And he's mentoring and he's giving him uh, ideas and uh, commands and strong suggestions in some cases. And so that's where we pick up here is right at the end of that. And it's kind of at the end of each of Paul's letters, often he has a collection of, of commandments or exhortations, and that's what we're going to be reading today. So let me start with uh, verses 6 through 8 in 1 Timothy, where Paul says, "...but godliness with contentment is great gain." For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. And so if you're a math nerd like myself, you look for little equations in life and in wisdom and in the Bible, and you could write out the equation, godliness plus contentment equals great gain. And you would kind of understand what Paul is saying here, that, that godliness is great, but when you add contentment to it, There's great gain in that. And today, when we start talking about contentment, we have to understand what contentment is. It has to do with satisfaction. It has to do with somewhat of an independence. You're not dependent upon others. You don't need other things to come in. You're content. And there's even an element of self-sufficiency, not not in the sense that we're dependent from Christ, but as the helps word studies that you can find on a place like biblehub.com says that contentment means you have all you need within yourself through the indwelling Christ because Christ lives in you if you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ one of the miracle uh, miracles of the gospel is that Jesus takes up residence in us through the person of the holy spirit and now Christ is dwelling within the believer and contentment biblical contentment is making the point that we have all we need within ourselves because Jesus is living within us and Jesus is all we need so we're not independent from Christ We're wholly dependent on Him, and because He lives within us, therefore we need nothing from the world around us. We we don't need people to meet all of our needs. We have what we need in our relationship with Christ. And so, verses 7 and 8 kind of get to the practical outgrowing of this. We brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of it. There are no There are no trailers on the hearse, if you've ever noticed that. Hearses don't pull a trailer with all those accumulated possessions behind them, right, that they put in the hole with you. No, you leave everything behind and you go on to the life that awaits you. And so, if we have food and drink, we can be content in that, Paul is saying to Timothy. And in in Philippians, he says something similar. He talks about discovering the secret of being content in all things. Philippians 4, you can read it's a pretty big chunk of that chapter, is dealing with the subject of contentment. And he says, when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, 
I can do all things through Christ because He's within me. He strengthens me. I have everything I need. I can do everything God is going to call me to do because of the strength that Christ gives me living from within me. And then in verse 19, he says that basically he's going to be amply supplied by all of God's riches and glory. He doesn't have needs here on earth, earthly needs, because God has taken care of his eternity. God is providing for him in the here and now. Christ is living within him. He has all he needs. And so we see godliness with contentment is great gain. It made me wonder, what about godliness without contentment? What would we call that? What would we call godliness without contentment? And I thought, well, that could be legalism. That could be the idea of asceticism, where you kind of, you kind of try to remove all the pleasures of life and just live a miserable existence. And, you know, that would be maybe a godliness without contentment, or just the idea of religion. Do more, try harder, do more, try harder, do more, try harder. Focus on the godliness. Contentment is not for you, (laughs) would be the godliness without contentment. It could cause you to become very judgmental of others if you only had godliness but no contentment. And then I wondered, okay, well, what about contentment without godliness? And I think there's always a risk when we focus on contentment that we'll become complacent and we'll stop striving for Christ and we'll stop striving for growth in our relationship with Christ and we'll stop striving for holiness and godly living that we talked about last week. But there's, there's also an extreme where we would see humanism or, or hedonism where it's all about me, it's all about my pleasure, my satisfaction. If it feels good, do it. What's in it for me? And so you can see there's a continuum there, and that is why I believe Paul says godliness with contentment is indeed great gain. It is great gain. When you combine the two, when you are living a godly life and you're pursuing holiness and all the things we talked about last week, and you add with that a contentment, a sufficiency in Christ where you have everything you need in Him, it's great gain. And one of the the greatest threats to our contentment is our tendency to compare ourselves with others, to compare our house, our car, our possessions, our career, our family, our whatever with others. And social media makes this so easy to do anymore because you get to see everybody else's highlight reel. And then when you turn that off, you get to see your reality. And sometimes it doesn't feel like there's a lot of contentment in there. In fact, one quote that I saw on social media, ironically, says the beginning of comparison is the end of contentment. And I think that's true. The beginning of, of comparison is the end of contentment. It's a trap. It's a trap. When we start to compare, it's going to either lead us to pride or to discontentment. We'll either be proud that ours is so much better than everybody else's, or we'll be discouraged and depressed that ours is not as good as everybody else's. And so contentment ends when comparison begins. And comparison can also fuel things like envy and greed and the endless pursuit of more. And so that's why Paul has some pretty strong language in verses 9 and 10. In fact, one of these verses contained one of our our godless myths of, of last week when we were talking through uh, what are some of the modern godless myths that we, that we deal with. If you didn't uh, catch that message, you can find it online. But verse 9 and 10 tell us, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager to 
eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So this is really strong language here in verse 9 and 10. And he says that the people who want to get rich, who make that their chief desire, their chief aim, they face three challenges. Did you catch that in verse 9? There's a temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires. And so if you want to get rich, you got to watch out for these three things. So we got a little section here about you want to get rich? Know that there's a temptation that comes with the desire to be rich. And the first the temptation, I believe, would be the temptation to misalign your values, to cut some corners, to be selfish. Those are all temptations that come with wanting to be rich, desiring to be rich. And the contrast would be godly values, where we value the things that God values. And, and we don't cut corners, we walk with integrity, we pursue integrity. And we don't, we don't allow ourselves to become selfish. Instead, we're generous. And so the temptation is going to be to misalign those values. But the corrective, the godliness with contentment, would lead us towards godly values, towards integrity, towards generosity. You see, if, if you really want to be rich and you pursue that wholeheartedly, you're not going to tithe. You're not going to give to the poor. You're not going to give anonymously. If you do give, you're going to make sure that there's a sponsorship, that your name's attached to it somehow, that people know that you gave so that it benefits you in some way, and you're not going to be generous. You're not going to believe in true charity. In fact, you'll poke holes in those that might be recipients and say, well, they're not worthy, or they did this, or they made their choices, and all of these things are the temptations that come with the desire to get rich. So that's the first thing. There's a temptation. Second, there's a trap. And here's the trap. Sometimes you succeed. Sometimes if you want to get rich, sometimes you succeed at getting rich. And now you know what you got to do? You got to stay rich. And you got to get richer. And so there's a trap because you need more and more. And you want to stay rich. And you want to get richer. And the question, how much is enough, gets answered with just a little more. Just a little more. Just a little more. I remember uh, the story that the, uh, the accountant for one of the Rockefellers, I can't remember which one, but insanely wealthy member of society, one of the wealthiest Americans at one point, the accountant was asked, how much did he leave behind? And the accountant just smiled and said, all of it. He left all of it behind. He didn't get to take any of it with him. And you contrast that with Sir John Templeton, who was asked one time at an investor meeting, if you've ever heard of Franklin Templeton Investments, Sir John Templeton was the Templeton of Franklin Templeton Investments, billions and billions of dollars under management. And they asked him, what's the best financial decision you ever made? And he said, tithing to my local church was the best decision. He kept the values aligned. And so when Paul says in verse 10 that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, it's because the love of money, the desire to be rich, when that gets out of balance, it leads to greed. It leads to avarice, which is extreme greed and extreme lack of contentment. There's an emptiness in the midst of all this wealth, much like the king in the quilt maker's gift. And so this is why the the author of Hebrews says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So there's a temptation. There's a trap. And there are many harmful and foolish desires that come along with the desire to be rich. 
and they bring about ruin and destruction. And so the love of money is called the root of all evil, and we're told that because of it, some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And they have regrets at the end of their lives instead of a sense of fulfillment. Nobody has ever said on their deathbed, gosh, I wish I would have worked more. I wish I would have gone in earlier and stayed later and spent more weekends in the office. They all say, I wish I would have spent more time with family, with friends, with the people that I love, with service. And so ungodliness without contentment is, is the path that we see Paul taking this letter. That it starts, godliness with contentment is great gain, and then we see that love of money is the root of all evil, and that those who have desired, who have really wanted to get rich, they fall into temptation and a trap and many foolish and harmful desires, and they end up with ungodliness without contentment, and often unawares. Often we're unaware. We, people are unaware. They have money, so they don't realize what they don't have. They don't realize what's missing or what's been sacrificed. And so you might be asking right now, Pastor Mark, are you talking about all rich people? Does this describe the fate of all rich people? Absolutely not. Not at all. Nothing could be farther from the truth. This describes those who want to get rich, those who desire to get rich, those who are eager for money, Paul says. These are the people that make that their chief aim. That is their chief goal. And I would say in my experience that the best rich people are the ones that didn't really want it. They're the ones that weren't seeking it. It wasn't their first goal. Wealth was or is a byproduct of their godliness plus contentment. And it becomes a platform for ministry, and it becomes an opportunity to bless others, to encourage others, to support others, to sustain others that can't for themselves. And the, the, the best rich people, so to speak, are the ones that weren't seeking to get rich but found themselves rich. And Paul speaks to them next. He talks about what do we do with wealth. And if you skip down a paragraph into verses 17, 18, and 19, Paul talks about how to be rich. Instead of how to get rich, he's talking about how to be rich. And before we get into these verses, I just want to say, if you've got change in your pocket and a full belly, you're better off than 80% of the world. Think about it. Half of the world lives on less than $2 a day. If you have change in your pocket and a full belly, you're better off than 80% of the world. If you throw in on top of that secure shelter, transportation, food, water, those types of things, you're better off than 90% of the people in this world. If you have insurance of any kind, if you have property that's worth insuring, you're better off than 90% of the world. 90% of the world doesn't even know what insurance is. They don't have something worth insuring. (laughs) And so these things that we take for granted. In fact, if you're watching this online, the device that you're watching it on, whether it's a cell phone or a tablet or a TV, is probably worth more than the net worth of about 70 or 80% of the world. Just the device that we're watching it on. And so I say that to preface this paragraph where Paul says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is really life. And so I say, and I'll I'll argue with this after the service if you disagree, we're the rich. 
We are rich in this present age. Paul is talking to us. He could have written this to the American church. He could have written this to pretty much America in general. We are the rich individually, corporately, nationally. So what are we to do? Paul lists three main things that that I've titled a little subsection, how to be rich. This is how to be rich. He's saying if you are rich, this is how you should be rich. First, don't be arrogant. We see this in verse 17. Don't be arrogant and don't put your trust in wealth. He explains that's very uncertain. Wealth is very uncertain. If you've ridden the waves of the stock market, you know wealth can be very uncertain. You can go from a millionaire to not a millionaire to a hundred thousandaire. Wealth is very uncertain and your, your tides can turn very quickly. So he says, don't put your trust in wealth. Instead, hope in God. Put your trust in God, not in your wealth, not in your bank account. Make sure you're reading your Bible more than you're reading your financial statements. Put your trust in God. That's a very important first step because the second step is to be generous, to be generous, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be willing to share. This is really hard if you don't trust God. If you don't trust God, if you don't recognize that everything you have is a gift from God for you to enjoy and to share and to be generous with, it's going to be really, really hard to turn those things over, to let those things go. And being generous is a lot easier if you trust God. And it actually sets up our bottom line today. Our bottom line today is that the key to contentment is generosity. The key to contentment is generosity. Think about this. The most content people you know, I would venture a guess that they are also some of the most generous people that you know. And I don't think it's a stretch. I think there's an undeniable link between generosity and contentment. That those who are naturally generous are also naturally content. And you could say, well, which comes first, Mark, the chicken or the egg? (laughs) Are they generous because they're content or are they content because they're generous? And I would say, yes, they are. But think about this for a second. We're told to love, to to love one another. That's the last command Christ gave before his death, to love one another. And he even says in 1 John 1, the Bible tells us that God is love, so we're never more like God than when we're loving others. And agape love is a self-sacrificing surrender for the needs, for the, the, the needs of someone else. And so we experience his joy. We experience God's joy when we love. He loves us lavishly, and I believe it brings him great joy. And we experience that joy when we love others, when we're generous, when we're willing to share, when we're kind, and when we're rich in good deeds. And we've got a lot of great examples about this around Linwood, and I just got to pause for a second and tell you this is so much more fun to preach a message like this in a generous church than it is to preach a message like this in a stingy church where people have been pursuing just getting their own and not sharing with others. We have a very generous church. That's why we paid off our mortgage early. That's why, why we have nice facility to worship in and to bring our community into, and that's why we have a really nice playground down on the south end. We haven't made a big deal out of this because the donors didn't want us to, but the vast majority of that playground, the whole thing, was funded by a family that just wanted to see children play and love coming to church and play together. And they don't want their name on anything, and they don't want any recognition. They just wanted to to know that part of their life was going to outlast their life, that there would be a playground for decades into the future where kids would play and would be looking forward to coming to church and would be hearing about Jesus and playing for a few minutes and then coming inside and hearing the gospel. And so 
Last week, it was a little cool for, for playing on the playground, and things were a little damp. So they went out and they prayed. And I just love this, and I love the picture that we got of it. The kids praying over that playground when it was a little too wet to play on that playground. I'm pretty sure there are going to be kids playing on it today. And there's going to be a lot of kids playing on it into the future. And that's just one example. That's just one example of people that get a desire to bless others instead of to bless themselves or to just pass it on to their kids or to pass it on. I'm not saying you don't do that. But generosity should go beyond your family. Generosity should go beyond those that you like and that like you. Generosity is something that we can give open-handedly. And so we come back to our story, and we have this miserable, wealthy king. And yet, he comes across the quilt maker, and the quilt maker makes these beautiful, beautiful quilts. And they are just spectacular. And the only caveat to these quilts is that she will never sell them. She only gives them away to the poor and to the homeless. Each time she finishes a quilt, she takes it down at night to those that are sleeping on the streets, and she wraps them in the quilt. And he wants this quilt, the most beautiful quilts in the world, and he goes out and demands that she make one for him, and she refuses. She's there only for the poor, and you, sir, are not poor. But she makes him a deal. And there's more to the story, and that's why you should get the book and read it and read it to your kids. But there's more to the story. But, but she makes him a deal. If you start giving away your treasures, every time you give away a treasure, I'll sew a piece into your quilt. And he really stews over this, and he finds one marble that he'll give away. And he goes and finds a little child and gives this marble. And he sees the delight and the joy from the child receiving a marble from the king. And it inspires him to give a little more and give a little more and give a little more. And next thing you know, he has got the giving gift. He just starts giving all around town, all around the kingdom, all around the world. He goes on trips, and he just gives away all of his wealth. And each time he gives something away, the quilt maker knows, and she... Right? And finally, when he's given everything away, he comes to her and, and he's just got so much joy. But he has nothing left. And she hands him the quilt that she had finished and he says, what's this? She says, well, I promised you long ago when the day came that you yourself were poor. Only then would I give you a quilt. The king's great sunny laugh made green apples fall and flowers turn his way. I am not poor, he said. I may look poor, but in truth, my heart is full to bursting, filled with memories of all the happiness I've given and received. I am the richest man I know. And I love that story because it, it points to the gospel for me. It points to the gospel that says that there is a God who, who loves us and who wants to bless us. And when we make, turn our lives over to him and we give away all we have, we surrender it to him, we surrender it to the foot of the cross, we say, you're over it all now, Lord. It belongs to you. He gives us the greatest gift we could ever desire. So be generous. And then third in verse 19, lay up treasure in heaven. That's basically what Paul is saying in verse 19. In this way, they lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I love that the words firm foundation just happen to sneak themselves into that passage, and that's the series we're doing next. I smiled at that as I studied for this week. I was like, well, I already knew where we were going. Apparently, God knew as well. 
And he says, lay up treasures as a firm foundation for the age to come. It's basically what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 when he says, do not lay up, store up treasures for yourselves here on earth where moth and rust destroy, but store up more for yourselves, store up treasures for yourselves in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Is your treasure in a stock portfolio? Is it in real estate? Is it in a bank account? Or is your treasure in the kingdom of God? Is your treasure in heaven? And are you paying it forward into heaven? Are you paying it forward and establishing a firm foundation where we will be able to take hold of the life that is truly life? And that's God's desire for each and every one of us. He knows what it is. The question is, do we trust him? Do we trust him? Do we trust Him to pursue godliness and to find contentment in the godliness, to find contentment in the ways of God rather than the ways of this world? Because the key to contentment, the key to contentment is generosity. The key to contentment is generosity. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for today and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your desire that we would experience not only godliness, but contentment as well. That we would pursue holiness, that we would be growing in generosity, that we would know how to steward what you have given to us, and that we would experience the contentment that comes through being generous, rich in good deeds, willing to share. Lord, we pray for each person that's listening to this message here in the room, online, at some point in the future. May they be drawn to you, Lord. May they lean into your word and what it says. And if there's an area in our lives, Lord, where your Holy Spirit has whispered in our ear, that we would listen to that, we would lean into that, we would take the next step. And that we would be those who help others along this path. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray.